0: Okay, everyone, places and action. I love the smell
1: of napalm in the morning. You talking to me? Here it looks like you boys have seen a lot of action. You're going to need a bigger boat. Why oh, so serious? I am serious, and don't call me sure.
2: This is a Cinema Plus podcast brought to you by More Movies.
0: Hello, everyone. And welcome to the Cinema Plus Podcast. I'm Greg Fisher, and today I'm joined by my good friend and colleague Dave Roberts as we take a look back at Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was released this time last year in the summer of 2019. The film stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie in a story that blends real-life characters with fictional creations and is set in Los Angeles in the late 60s leading up to the infamous Manson family murders of the movie star Sharon Tate and her entourage. Once Upon a Time is Tarantino's tribute to a Hollywood of yesteryear, one which the director grew up in and has been influenced by throughout his illustrious career. The story follows a washed-up TV and movie star called Rick Dalton, who is struggling to find decent parts in a rapidly changing industry that favours youthful progressives over time-served veterans. Let's begin with an excerpt of Tarantino talking about the film.
1: Especially since like when it came to 1969, I was like between six and seven years old. The film became a big memory piece. Big part of my memory of Los Angeles at that time is being in the car and driving around and and listening to the radio playing all the time and how we listened to the radio back then, which is different than the way we listen to the radio now. And I I remember the bus stops advertising the the rerun shows that are on the local television stations and the movie posters and the, you know, Diet right, RC Cola, uh, billboards, all that kind of stuff. That's what I remember, in fact there's even, um, my stepfather drove a Carmen Ghia, uh, like uh, Cliff's character drives. So it's like, yeah, so it, it's, uh, yeah, so, uh, in the same way that Jackie Brown, I think, has the, the kind of me trying to capture the South Bay of the 80s, that's what I was trying to do with this.
0: So there's the great man himself, Quentin Tarantino, talking about the film. Now, uh, Dave and I actually went to see this film together with a friend of ours, Tom, uh, when it came out in August over here last year. Um, Dave, what a great film to see in the cinema.
2: One, one of the best. One of the best to see in the cinema. I think I make it a point to go and see a Tarantino film in the cinema. He's a cinema director. He's a master of that. And um, I think when you go and see a film like that, it's just so enjoyable it's exactly what you want to see and if you're a cinema buff it is go and see it at the pictures because this is going to be an enjoyable ride it's a it's an event it's event cinema isn't it
0: well it's funny because it's it's not the kind of cinema that Maybe is considered event cinema in terms of big blockbuster special effects movies of nowadays, where you've got the Marvel franchise and the Star Wars franchise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You've got all this spectacle that that does benefit being seen on a big screen. Some people would say, "Oh, well, Tarantino, not that much happens. Why would you want to see it in the cinema?" And I'll just I'll just watch it on DVD. But you know, you're absolutely right. This is such a spectacle. On the big screen uh one example uh is when brad pitt first drives home from um dicaprio's place after he's finished work for the first day and he goes home in his own car and and he just rips it through the streets when that happened when we were watching it i i i actually had hair stand up on my arm because it would just look so amazing and you really felt like you were right there, rushing alongside the car with the wind in your hair, with the music going, with all that Los Angeles uh, b- backdrop. I, I was, I was literally buzzing. Yeah, obviously. I think
2: it, it, it's a buzz, and I think when we say event cinema, you know, this is a director that, has always said, he'd only do ten films. Uh, such a revered director um, that creates visual masterpieces. So I think it's in that sense that this is. When, when a film of Tarantino comes out, like some other directors, it's special. And you've got to go and watch it because you don't know when you'll get a chance to see it again. Um, and, okay, yes, it's not it's not a blockbuster film, of course, but they're more event cinema because the studios make them event cinema. They're franchises, they're built up that way. It's uh, the whole marketing of the thing. This is more of an organic event cinema in terms of Tarantino's got millions of fans and they want to go see this film.
0: Well, this is also the uh, conversation at the moment that Martin Scorsese kind of was the catalyst of uh, around the whole issue of what constitutes as cinema and what constitutes as what he described as uh, theme park experience kind of films, which, of course, he was talking about the Marvel franchise in particular. Uh, Obviously, you know, in the centre of this argument, forgetting both extremes on either side that is a very good point to be made uh, about you know these films are of course still cinema they're still released in a cinema and it's a movie theatre experience but he does come from a, a background of of really just really great films, great dramas and uh, thrillers and what what film fans might consider to be you know high art or top class films. Whereas maybe some fans of the Marvel franchise are feeling like it's, it's, it's getting looked down upon, but talking about, you know, bringing it back to Tarantino, this is, this is the kind of thing where the Martin Scorsese would probably put his stamp of uh, approval on to say, yes, this is cinema. This is what you should, you know, what the movie theaters were made for. And this is what you should go and see when you go to see a, a great movie. And, as you said yourself, uh, Tarantino, you know, he only wants to make 10 films. I mean, you know, what's that about? Why only 10? I mean, Akira Kurosawa was still making movies in his 80s, you know, I know he didn't make a million movies, but, you know, you could still keep going.
2: Yeah, I think it's one of them peculiar kind of foibles of of of, of someone like Tarantino. It's, it's just one of them really strange things. And And maybe he'll go back on it. I hope he goes back on it, to be honest. <laughs> I'm well up for a lot more. Yeah, um, eleven.
0: But Quentin Tarantino's twelve. He turned movie, his back. The thirteenth <laughs> chapter.
2: Maybe you'll just start calling him, a, you know, ten point one, ten point two. It's a it's a ten part film. The next one.
0: Well, he said he he might do he said he might do television and um and and other little projects. But you know, look at George Lucas said he was going to go and direct a load of stuff that no one would see and. He just gonna make for himself he probably hasn't done shit since he's counting so that money far. that's <laughs> what he's doing he's <laughs> taking him taking the rest of his life to count that money but yeah i mean I interestingly mean,
2: tarantino is talking about doing this um bounty law which is in once Upon a time in hollywood as a as a series which would be interesting
0: well is as yeah yeah actually so talked he's, about he's, doing he's
2: claimed and you never know with tarantino because he, he's claimed a lot of things over the years which have never appeared
0: yeah, he, but, like, um, he likes to
2: wind up. The claim is that he's um, written five episodes of it, and um, that he's interested in doing a series.
0: Oh, I bet he's done that. I I wouldn't put it past him to have done that, and he probably made um, DiCaprio <laughs> read it just to say, "Rick Dalton, it's like, come on read do all it, the you scripts. bitch! Make yourself a m- make yourself a Mojito and read the Ride scripts, in the pool over Leo. there. <laughs> yes, Quentin. <laughs> yeah, sit in your pool on that <laughs> floating chair with a Stein full of booze and read my fucking scripts, okay? So, um, if they did film that, the potential for guest stars is amazing because he hinted at that, you know, Michael Madsen in there, in, in that one episode and obviously these kind of, these episodic uh, USA uh, serials like that always had a guest star each week, look at the Columbo, there, they yeah. were all in Colombo and stuff, but do you, do you think DiCaprio would commit to something like that? Because as far as I'm concerned, or as far as I know, he's never really done um, any
2: term um, I'm not sure. I don't know if he did something early on in his career, perhaps. I'm not 100% on that. Um, I know some of the American stars did. Um, but I think if you'd have asked me asked that question five years ago or 10 years ago, it would have been, no, no chance. I think today, in today's climate, we've seen Scorsese go to Netflix. We see the budgets of these uh, TV shows on these streaming services. There's no shadow of a doubt that Tarantino would be given the biggest budget you'd ever see for, a, for a, a series on something like Netflix or Amazon or one of those and could well afford someone like DiCaprio and he would well be up for, for doing it, you know.
0: Maybe it'd be like... Um... You know that Buster Scruggs that the Cohen brothers did. That was it was kind of episodic, but if you put it all together, it would be one you know a huge movie full of vignettes. So, what you say there about uh, the Netflix idea, maybe, or, or one of the big streaming services doing yeah. that? I could see it, and uh, it would have to be a fight like the Mandalorian or something. You know, six episodes or so, not not a huge amount, not like the old days, twenty four episodes or anything. It'd be like you know five or six really good. Uh, Hour-length episodes and It'd be brilliant. that would be hilarious. I'd love to see it. He he's obviously got a bit of a penchant for the uh, western. Yeah,
2: I think he likes western, and I think he he clearly has a love for those serials from the fifties and sixties um, American television because that's really present in his work.
0: Yeah, he he grew up with them. Yeah. He grew up with them just like I grew up with the A Team, Knight Rider, you know, all of that stuff. Um, And I grew up with... That 80s era of...
2: And I grew up with Goosebumps. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Baywatch.
0: You grew up with Baywatch.
2: I think even that's a bit before my time, if I'm honest. Um, But
0: um, I I, I think... Are you making out like you're you're 12 years old or something? I am. Definitely. I'm only 12. uh, (laughs) Baywatch
2: was big. I don't recall watching it anyway. Um, It may may have been out, but... um, He's got a fond memory for it. I think the, the two influences for Tarantino are kind of those early television serials and then the kind of cinema of the 70s. Well, uh, I think Yeah, because, he's a nerd.
0: Oh, he's a total nerd. nerd yeah. And he absolutely loves all of the, uh, the B movie actors, the ones that you never really heard of. That's why he's used them in his films. Someone like Michael Parks, who was in um, From Dust Till Dawn and then later in the uh, Kill Bill uh, films. You know he he was a great actor but he was he was never he never really made it he's a bit of a Rick Dalton himself yeah. you know and um and and I think to some degree it was the same with Robert Forrester with um Jackie Brown you know he kind of relaunched his career because he just you know, take it to the nth degree. He did that with uh, Christoph Waltz as well, kind of plucked him out of obscurity from German television and films and made him a Oscar, double Oscar-winning uh, superstar.
2: Yeah, I think he's got a real skill and obviously a love for for, for kind of taking people who are less um, less well-known or were stars once, as in like Travolta and people like that, um, and obviously... Have a bit of a downward trajectory and giving him a complete boost again, um, and I think it's really, really wonderful to see. Really, um, when he does that, and it works so well, well. It's
0: nice he's done it with he's done it with Kurt Russell in this film. Yeah, where, uh, which he's obviously used him in um, Death Proof, Stuntman Mike, but uh, and he, of course in the Hateful Eight, he's used him again. And now he, even though it's a lesser role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's he's st- he's still in there. Still a memorable part. And I I like the fact that Tarantino is one of those directors that has a a cast of stars that he does like to keep working with. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson wasn't in this one, as far as I'm aware. uh, But I think it's the first time, isn't it?
2: Pardon? I think it's the first time, isn't it, that Jackson isn't uh, in one of his films, perhaps?
0: Yeah, possibly, yeah. But anyway... uh, You know, um, he's he's worked with Brad Pitt and *Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, and he's worked with DiCaprio before, of course, on uh, Django Unchained. First time with Margot Robbie. Maybe he'll have her back again, like he did with um, Uma Thurman. He seemed to like working with her.
2: Well, I think what I really liked in this is the chemistry between uh, Brad Pitt and DiCaprio. And I'd love to see more of that under Tarantino, if I'm honest, because I think they work so well together, and with his writing, it's really really fun.
0: What do you mean, like those two uh, starring together again as different characters in a Tarantino film, or those two as the same characters?
2: Um, well, I'd love to see both if if they did a, a series or something. That'd be really great. But just using those two actors.
0: Well, if if, if they if they did Bounty Law, you'd get that yeah. because if they did it kind of like the the series within the series the actual show yeah. itself then you would get to see Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth rather than just seeing Rick Dalton the character and Cliff Booth as the stuntman <laughs> being Rick Dalton yeah so that would be fun i mean that would be that would be very cool yeah because then you could you could have them get into adventures outside of the, the film sets so you could still have each episode and bits of it, like he did within this film, where you get little snippets of it, and, you, and it actually, you know, lets you sink into a scene and forget that there's a, a camera crew around and all the, uh, all the, and the director and all the extras and stuff. Suddenly, you get into the scene, and then it, ooh, it'll break you out again. They could do that with this like TV show, and then. It'd be like, you know, as soon as it's a wrap for the day and these guys go home and they get into some kind of adventure, that would be uh, that'd be pretty good fun.
2: Or oh, what you could do would be even more fun, I think. Uh, there was a sitcom quite a few years ago now. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, it was an American one. It was actually quite a big one, wasn't it? But uh, where one one of the series was behind the scenes and the other was the actual show they were producing and I can't remember what it was called. But you know that could be another way of it doing. Doesn't it.
0: ring any bells. I, uh, I don't know what that, yeah. that was, but uh, that's the kind of thing, though, where you've got that kind of meta thing going, going on, on. Yeah, um, I mean they all they all love to do it. The film within the film. Look at *Hail Caesar*. We were talking about the other day. You've got several productions going on within that because it's about somebody who's the head of a major studio. So you got a similar deal going on here with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. As you'd imagine, it's Hollywood. we got the studio system. We've got loads of productions being made. We've got people who've got a bit of a past from having worked in the industry for a long time. Uh, you know, two guys at, at a crossroads in their lives. Um, both intertwined, but for different reasons. Um, and we, we kind of catch up with them at a time when all this is kind of coming to a head and they're at, at at this crossroads in their lives where they're going to go one way or the other and obviously that's all done against the backdrop of the fact that Charles Manson and his Manson family were all living on spawn Ranch at the, at, at the time which they were yeah I think that that I love that element to it is all true I mean obviously Rick Dalton's fictional even though he's an amalgamation of all these characters. Cliff Booth doesn't really exist. He's a Quentin Tarantino in, incarnation. But, you know, as far as uh, Tex and um, a couple of other, those those other killers that actually did kill Sharon Tate, they, they were all real. So he's, it's a credible feat to mix these two worlds and, and pull it off uh, the way he did.
1: Yeah, I
2: think the, the mixing of the worlds, the ability to kind of take all the stuff that's real, which is a lot in it that's real, Um but put in these characters that are very believable. You completely get them. Um, they're real archetypes of the people who were around at that time. And uh, it blends seamlessly. But that, more than anything, I think is... Obviously, it's down to Tarantino's fantastic writing. Um, but it, it, it's also the performances. It's a great cast. You totally believe the Rick Dalton character. You totally believe the Cliff Booth character. Um, you totally believe the Sharon Tate um performance it's really well let's meaningful. just break
0: let's just stop there and break that down a little bit because that's a lot of ground you've just mentioned in three uh, sentences there i mean dicaprio's performance it is an incredible performance is it not because what we are witnessing is almost like an emotional breakdown a man's it's like a man's uh menopause It's like the male <laughs> menopause, this kind of uh, midlife crisis all hits him at once. He feels like he's washed up, you know, and that whole thing at the, the start with Al Pacino and kind of says to him, you know, you, you're getting beat up in Hollywood, you're getting beat up, you're getting washed up, come and star in these spaghetti westerns, you know, But and it just sends him on this this sort of uh, psychological bummer where he's just, you know.
2: And amazingly, it's crying on Cliff's shoulder. And amazingly, that kind of breakdown, that kind of descent of the character plays out across three hours. It's a total long game performance of, you know, it's not a a breakdown that happens in 20 minutes. This plays out across the whole film Um, and you see every emotion, you see every emotion that man goes through, you know, and I think that's one of the incredible parts, obviously from something is over the top as the the breakdown when he's in the uh, the like the caravan um the, the locker out the back Your trailer. the trailer uh, and he f- is throwing stuff around and really uh, kicking off at himself because he's fu- he's fucked his lines
0: up it. and he's embarrassed himself in front of everyone and he goes back to his trailer because he's been drinking the night before he hasn't really prepared professionally and it, and he just takes it out on himself and um just frozen absolute wobbly as we would say kicking things smashing things swearing at himself it's a, it's a hilarious moment
2: and then down to the more menacing kind of performance of him low playing it on set where he forgets his lines or or gets it wrong and obviously the the take has to stop but it's it's not an over the top angry outburst it's a low kind of Kept within oh, I, himself. He's probably
0: he's probably seen people do that, and he's just used yeah. that kind of energy where they're you know self you know no no, no just self motivating for a second. Fuck it, they do that sort of thing and um, snap back into it. He's probably seen people do it, <laughs> and uh, he's just used that energy. But on on the on uh, juxtaposed to that, we've got Brad Pitt's character Cliff Booth, who is. In his own way, he's going through his own sort of changes, and he's he's looking at a different future for himself. But this guy, he's he hasn't got the success that Rick's has enjoyed, but he he is cool. He's calm. He's always measured. He deals with things that come towards him, whatever that may be, and he ends up. You know, he can handle anything. Basically, he's he's a guy who can just. He's super cool. He can handle any shit.
2: He's Brad Pitt, and he's cool as fuck. I mean, that is that's his performance uh, kind of summed up. But there's a real gravitas to, to what he's pulling off, and um, it's a totally fun performance. You can tell that he enjoyed being on screen, doing what he was doing. And and to me, I know the scene received a lot of flack from from certain quarters, but the fight with Bruce Lee in the parking lot is just so funny it's just funny as fuck just it's so ridiculous but it makes sense within the, the context of of the story that's been told it's, it's obviously a bit of a daydream for Brad Pitt's character as he's on the roof which I don't think many people took into account when they were criticizing it but it's just silly and fun and why not you know it was representing
0: well, it's yeah, it's not a daydream. It's it's like a he's just he's having a memory because he's been sent back to fix the aerial on the roof because there's no work for him on set because Randy's running the set and the last time you know he was on a set with Randy that happened on the set of um, the Green Hornet where Bruce Lee again a real element to it all. Bruce Lee played Cato on the Green Hornet show and became. Uh, in a sense, the real star of the show. But you you raised a, a very good point that it was a controversial scene. Um, I think Bruce Lee's daughter uh, was was too pleased about the portrayal of her dad in it. Other people have criticised it as well. Obviously, people who were major fans of Bruce Lee. Um, I mean, I I'm a fan of Bruce Lee. I I like I've watched all these films. I, I I had my time of really enjoying watching them and. You know, when Enter the Dragon came on TV when you were a kid, it was a great treat. It was like, you know, um, fantastic action, martial arts action. He was the best. But I wasn't insulted by the interpretation of him there. I, I think Tarantino did him as a kind of cocky, a little bit, comes across as a little bit arrogant, a little bit cocky, and someone like, he's basically trying to re- reaffirm that Cliff Booth is the real deal tough guy. He was in World War II he, he was a trained, like, special ops kind of guy. He was the, you know, that Audie Murphy character that just um, was a war hero. Like like Dalton says to um, Kurt Russell's character, he's the goddamn war hero. Well, you know, this is the thing when Bruce Lee's, like, t- doing his Bruce Lee thing and talking about uh, his hands being lethal weapons.
2: That's you know, a brilliant gag. He's
0: sitting there, like, ah. Anyone kills anyone in a fight, it's manslaughter. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> Whatever he says, so funny. It's a brilliant game. And then, yeah, what what that the funniest payoff in that scene is when she comes out um, and kicks off and uh and yeah, kicks everybody's ass. Well, especially hit uh, Brad Pitt because she she hates him anyway, as as uh, Kurt Russell has said beforehand.
2: See, I I always interpreted that scene differently. I always thought to me it was like him thinking of being on set as he's on the roof, like dreaming of being on set. And that's what he tells people happened on set. Like the wild stories, people would say, Oh, this happened on set and it never really happened. It it was far less than what they make it out to be. It's kind of like uh, a vague memory of it kind of thing. That's how I always interpret it. But um, I think, I think there's nothing in there to me anyway, that um, like insults the memory of Bruce Lee because anyone who could take that seriously no
0: because when when Zoe when Zoe Bell comes out she says he's the goddamn lead on the show
2: you
0: know she's you know I don't think Tarantino was trying to he's a big fan as well you know in a way it's it's a fun way to use Bruce Lee's kind of you know, character in the film. Not doing yeah. it as the real Bruce Lee. He wouldn't have done that. But I mean, he uses him again because Sharon Tate did actually do some training with Bruce Lee because he used to train all those Hollywood stars, Steve McQueen and um, James Coburn or people like that. Um, so he did actually train her to do the, the the work that was required, and he and he he put that in there in when she has that flashback memory because when she's watching it, she's remembering at one point Bruce teaching her all the moves. And that's a nice little tribute as well. Uh, to you know, that was part of the the scene in the Hollywood scene in in the late sixties. Bruce Lee was the guy you go to to get your kung fu training.
2: He's the action guy. Um, he
0: is. He was the one that taught them to fight. You know, with that because it was a new thing then. But he 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 is tributed with bringing martial arts to Hollywood. To Hollywood, absolutely.
2: So on on that point, you know, talking of criticism of the film. Um, Although I think overall, most people had a very positive take on the film, and certainly most people I spoke to had a positive take on the film, and we've both enjoyed it thoroughly. Um,
0: well, we had an experience watching it, didn't we? Because I we think went so. To the cinema, we were totally blown away. We come back, you know, we were on cloud nine, uh, haven't seen it.
2: Um, but there has been in certain quarters criticism of it. Um, often, the criticism that is levelled at uh, Tarantino. Quite often. Um, for example, Matt Chipola at the film Monthly talked about it lacking purpose and gravitating towards easy... Who did? Who did? Matt Chipola at the film Monthly um, talked about it often lacking purpose and gravitating towards easy targets.
0: Well, you know what? I, I reject this hypothesis. <laughs>
2: I reject it completely. And so just thought I'd play a clip here of obviously renowned... Film reviewer Mark come out at the BBC just talking about the film and just get your reaction on what he says.
3: Um, I think it's also uh, fantastically ill disciplined. And there are there's more shoe leather in this film than I've seen in many. There's more you know shots of people walking from one place to another, because it feels. And now Robbie was talking about this as saying that his interpretation of it was that they were they were living in a period when time was running out, but they didn't realise that time was running out. And I think that's a very convincingly put argument, I don't buy it for a minute, but I think it's a very good argument. Um, I don't think that th- that's the case. I think that it's the bagginess of the storytelling. It basically means that there are whole sections like Brad Pitt up on the roof, with, doing the, which you just should be gone. I also think there are things like the Bruce Lee scene, which I thought was unforgivable. I mean, just flat out unforgivable. And anyone with any discipline would have just said, that's coming out, although it's a setup for a for a gang. Um, I think the way it looks is gorgeous. Um, there's never been any question that you know you can inhale the cinema of, uh, of Tarantino. I think there are certain moments in it that uh, that were very funny, and certain moments in it that were actually really weirdly, surprisingly moving. Um, but I did feel once again, and I you know, at the risk of sounding like a stuck record, that for me, when what I want is precision and concision, I And I don't, you don't get that from Tarantino. What you get is you wander into this world and you sort of inhabit it for a very long time, and then about two hours in, it stops and there's a voiceover which explains a whole bunch. You just think you've had two hours.
0: That the Bruce Lee thing. I don't. When he says unforgivable, is it? Do you think he's talking about the obviously the portrayal of Bruce?
2: I'm. I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't know if he means. That it's unforgivable in terms of taste in terms of the betrayal or whether it just it doesn't need to be there um, I'm, I, I'm not 100% sure on that if I'm honest
0: well he said that he, he he noted that it does serve the
2: it sets up a gag yeah
0: you know it, it sets up a gag in the scene but um, so it, I, I think he must be talking about uh, portraying Bruce Lee as a bit of a um, you know showboat
2: yeah I don't I I don't uh, I don't agree with that kind of interpretation of it
0: well I don't because I, I just thought what he's trying to hammer home is this is how this is how hard Cliff Booth is that if he had a fight with Bruce Lee
2: he'd win kick his ass yeah, yeah.
0: or at least at least Eve even Stephen because they both get each other down once so we got to say it was a bit of a draw but you know that was the whole thing when I was growing up anyway um You know, oh, my dad's so hard, he could have Bruce Lee. Yeah. That sort of thing, you know. It was always Bruce Lee was this benchmark of nobody can beat Bruce Lee because he's the ultimate fighter. And that's what I felt like Tarantino was getting at. He just used that side of Bruce's personality that was kind of, could be construed as arrogant.
2: And I think that as well. that like people, yeah. it almost feels like people are, are, are criticize it, going, "Oh, Bruce Lee's really odd. You know, no one could beat him." Kind of thing. It kind of feels like it comes from that angle a bit, and it's kind of a bit childish.
0: Yeah, and and no one's attacking him for saying, "Oh, he he, he made Sam Wanamaker out to be a bit of a coke sniffing, crazy old Hugh <laughs> Hefner kind of ass slapping," which he wasn't. You know, he wasn't. No. I don't think Sam Wanamaker was anything like. Uh, the portrayal in the film, which was fantastic by Nicholas Hammond because I, I haven't really seen Nicholas Hammond in anything for years. And when I was a kid, he was the first Spider-Man. He was the TV Spider-Man. Um, well, you know, Peter Parker, because I imagine most of the time in the suit was some stuntman, but he, he was, in my mind as a child, the first sort of TV, you know, actor to play Spider-Man, and again, like that whole tradition of using, you know, actors that should have should have done more than they actually did in the end, should have achieved more. Nicholas Hammond is a great example of that. So he's even used him as the director of the movie, and he's done this crazy portrayal of Sam Wanamaker. You know, when he's going on about, uh, you know, he does that motorbike thing, doesn't he? He's, which is like. It's a bit over the top when he does it. It makes you sort of laugh out loud, but he does it with just enough sort of enthusiasm that you just accept it. And, but, like with the Bruce Lee thing, I don't think Tarantino's trying to say this is the kind of guy Sam Wanamaker was he's just it's like a caricature, yeah, more than a character,
2: yeah, I think that's it. it's just a kind of an idol you know this an idolized version in in this world he's made up it's a, it's a, it's not this ain't a biography. You know, this is a, a biopic. This is a, a narrative tale that, in, in the is end, a fairy tale. yeah, and in it's the a end, fairy
0: tale. once upon a time,
2: that's it. Because you know, it doesn't end how real life ends. You know, um, it's a, it's a completely different thing. It's just very much inspired. Now
0: let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because you know, anyone who's listening. I would think that they've seen this movie. If they haven't and they're listening to this... Turn off now. Well, you know, we're obviously talking... Well, yeah, already we've been talking about stuff that could be considered as spoilers, in inverted commas. But the the end to this film... Now, for me, I was watching it and loving it and all this stuff we've been talking about, all the performances and the funny gags and the little scenes... And the leather, uh, as uh, and Mark Monset, apology, yeah yeah. Um, I was enjoying it all, but in the back of my mind, the whole way through, because it's Tarantino and you don't know what's going to happen, I was thinking, what the hell is he going to do at the end of this film? Because I just didn't. I knew that Rick and Cliff would have something to do with it, but we all know the reality of the Manson family murders, particularly... This chapter of it, the Sharon Tate murders, and it's such a touchy area because, as uh, as Commode said about you know the exploitative element to it, you'd have to really tread carefully here. And I thought, what what is he going to do? What's going to happen here? And then what does transpire, and what does happen? I considered to 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 be cinematic genius because what I felt. Tarantino did was take real life bad guys that everybody can have an investment in hating so to speak because of the unspeakable things that they did to a, to Sharon Tate and her entourage in real life so these people he took these real bad guys and what he's done is he's used his characters uh, to absolutely annihilate them in what is Five full minutes of the most, you know, some of the most extreme violence you'll see in a in a major picture. Uh, you know, Brad Pitt versus you know the Manson family, basically, and then Leo coming in dusting them off. But what? Why I think it was genius was because it was almost his answer to all his critics when they say, "Why would you like to use so much violence? Do you think violence is wrong in movies?" And basically, what he's done and said is what he's said and done here is here's the worst people you could possibly imagine. And in in my movie, instead of them going and killing the people we, we know that they went and killed, they knock on the wrong door and they get absolutely annihilated by these two guys who you've just been watching for two hours. And you are going to love every second of it because in real life, in real life violence, you know what these people did. So with the justice you see them get delivered to them on the screen is his answer to why he enjoys violence in movies because that's not what happened. Yeah. That's not what happened in real life and the two aren't related in a way, but he he made you know he makes you elated that these people are getting their comeuppance. Whether you like that level of violence and blood and guts or not. I still I, I, I found it a little bit too much, you know I've got to admit my, my personal taste for, for, for that kind of thing is you know I don't you know it was a little bit crazy when he's smashing her face into the telephone and stuff, but some people love that sort of stuff, but you know but the notion that these guys, uh, these Manson family people, got their comeuppance because they knocked on the wrong door. Because their murders were so gutless. They were such cowards. You know, they broke into a pregnant woman's house and murdered everyone. Just an absolutely despicable sort of act. And instead, in Tarantino's world and his use of violence, because it's not a violent film other than that. You know, some of his films, like, have got a good amount of violence throughout, like Pulp Fiction or something. There's quite a lot of scenes. But...
2: You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I pretty much agree with where you were coming from. I think we've talked about this before. And I think I, I sat there watching the watching the film and it was quite interesting really because, as you say, there's not much else in the film that's violent. And, but because it's Tarantino, the expectation is there's going to be violence. We've seen the rest of his catalogue. So I was actually sitting there throughout the film going, when's it coming? When's it coming? When's it coming? Whilst also,
0: well, you know when it's coming. But you know it's going to come at the end. But it's about how but, is it going to come?
2: But, but also, you know, would it happen earlier in the film, or is it going to be the very end? Is there going to be something else that happens? Maybe when he was at the ranch, um, uh, you know, earlier in the film, uh, was something going to happen there? But nothing, no, not proper violence ever occurred in, in the film until that that end point. But also, you kind of know. As you were saying, what happens in real life that's coming, and it felt like this um, this spring getting turned on 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 your back, like it was the pressure building, 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 all throughout the film, and then when it hits that moment, they knock on the wrong door and they go in, it's like this release valve goes off, and I to me it was like an elated feeling. So this violence. Was like,
0: ha, well, this is this you is know. this is exactly it. He makes even somebody who would, who abhors violence, if they were open-minded enough to say, "All right, I'll sit through this film." Even they, deep down inside, I think would feel what you've just described of this elation. Yeah, that, uh, he's going to get them. These people are not going to kill Sharon Tate because no matter what happens from this point on, they are, you know, in combat with Cliff Booth that you know even if they beat him they're not going to get away lightly the dog of course the dog saves the day the dog's amazing greatest performance in the film if you ask me and i I reject that hypothesis but you know (laughs) it's it's it is elation elation it's it's a strange thing and that's the genius of it because he says it's his answer it's his answer for this is why i do violence in my movies 'Cause it's an escapism, it's 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 a way because we live in a world of injustice where basically evil people get away with killing people all the time. Yeah. Right. There is no real cliff booths and heroes in life. They you know, but a lot of them die in wars or they just you know, we just don't see or hear about it like we do in the films. But there is in very tales. And that's his answer. Here's the hero that you all want. Yeah. And it's not gonna be pretty, but you're gonna enjoy it because you know that these despicable people did a, did an absolutely horrific thing to somebody that you've also just spent a couple of hours with through Margot Robbie's performance, and yeah. she's so wonderful and sweet and just exudes being just a really lovely, lovely person, just on a you know a human level that. That's why I, I say I was thinking, what is he going to do here? What's he going to do? Because, to be honest with you, if he'd been like some sort of David Cronenberg sick, twisted son of a bitch, and Lars von Trier or something, and and, and then you'd actually entered into the Tate household with the killers, I would have walked out. I wouldn't watch that. I don't care who it is, you know. Uh, I, I don't want to watch that. So when he knocks on Rick Dalton's door and he gets a very high. Uh, Cliff Booth, who's just smoked uh, the acid cigarette some or something, hasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> some, something crazy. But he's that is that again. It's it's that's why he established that thing with Bruce Lee earlier. Is because even even when this guy's kind of half incapacitated because he's you know off his head on on some some acid, he, he's still deadly enough to take take them out.
2: And and to me, him and his dog, you know, it's it's such a hilarious sequence. The um the fight with the dog, and to me, the moment he's uh, bashing, I, I know you're saying it's probably too much. It's vicious, Vicious man. for you. It's vicious, but for savage. M- for me, I found it hilarious for myself. Um, I thought it was like over the top.
0: Oh, I, I found it, I, it hilarious, but I, I have—I uh, what I'm saying is I have to wince and turn away at a certain level, uh, whereas some people, I think, you know, fans of, of um, blood and gore genres... Because that, that's a horror section, that. It's not an action section.
2: Oh, no, it's definitely... Action is
0: when people are, you know, explosions going off, people jumping about. Yeah, you get some blood and guts, but really that is a a—it's a horror section. But that's the whole point. These people, he says, I'm the devil. Yeah, I'm here to do the devil's business, which apparently he said in real life. And there's this whole thing, make it witchy. And they're like little witches, aren't they? You know, especially the one with the dark hair and she's got a real look about her that's you know so nasty and witchy and um,
2: it's because they're a cult, aren't they? I mean, it's, so
0: it, yeah, exactly. So it's like open season and get ready. Like you said, it's going to be an. ex. He's saved it all up for the end. Instead of spreading out that amount of violence throughout the picture like he's done before, we get it in a compounded five minutes of absolute mayhem. It, it's just perfectly rounded off at the end, perfectly executed, if you will. Uh, when Rick Dalton comes out with the flamethrower and just completely roasts her in the in the swimming pool, what a payoff moment that is!
2: Absolutely, and but but my favourite part of that is that he's listening to Snoopy versus the Red Baron uh, whilst he's in the pool, which, which uh, I think is such a no a way that's thing.
0: that is a cool factoid. I didn't know that,
2: <laughs> but I think
0: <laughs> that is that is very interesting.
2: I think the whole um, the whole sequence is a real. It's it's perhaps the best payoff that Tarantino's done in a film, I think. In terms of a real kind of um, way to end it, it's different. It's I think it's so different structurally for him, um, especially considering it's more recent films. It's a it's a bit of a different direction.
0: Yeah, he's. A, he- he is a strange one. He does things his own way. Uh, apparently, his scripts are like novels. That he has to cut loads out himself. Uh, that he knows he won't be able to film. That you know, they've all noted the amount of effort that he puts in to create backstories for everyone. I heard um, a story the other day about um, one. Of, I think one of the cast said about it on uh, Inglorious Bastards. One of the extras that was playing like a background bastard, so to speak. Um, on the first day on set, Tarantino asked him, um, what his backstory was, and he he didn't have a clue what was going on or what to say. And he got he wasn't there the next day. That's how seriously best do your homework. That's how seriously he takes it, and he expects other people to take it. So
2: 11, 12, and 13. I I can't wait. Yeah, every 10 the next one. Yeah,
0: Um, well, is it 10? That's the the debatable
2: thing, anyway, though, because. So he's 10 classed class kill Bill as one. As one. Um, for example, I'm not sure if death proof is included in his count. Yeah, but yeah, this but is the thing that people have talked about in terms of. It depends on how you know, add you know, up his films.
0: As well, uh, I mean, I've I've heard him interviewed about it, and he has said, you know, he's not hundred percent only going to do 10. He, he leaves the options open, but he's, it's because of his reasons for giving it up, he, he doesn't see a world where he's either capable of making films to that standard, because obviously the energy and the amount of effort it takes to put in to do a film like that really well, um, is it, it takes a lot out of you, and he's getting a bit older now. But like I said, was still working, I mean, is still working, and he, he's not a spring chicken now, and the Irishman must have really took it out of him. We'll have to do another uh podcast about The Irishman at some point because that's a film I'd yeah. like to watch again and I'd like to go over and do a deep dive in that into that with you uh, because I think it'd really uh you know benefit from doing um, another watch and kind a of talking about but
2: yeah so uh fi- but even if Tarantino um even if Tarantino carried on and just and just wrote um instead of directing that would be but, but you know
0: oh he, he he said he'll still write and like we've already discussed he said uh he might do some television but he's interested in theater as well because hateful Eight was a play originally Plays That's out why as a play. when you watch yeah. the film it's it's mainly just in that one location and interesting kind of take on it but yeah uh once upon a time in hollywood is 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 a very different film um one that I, I i'm looking forward to seeing again i think i've seen it about three times now in the last year, maybe four. And it's still fresh. There's still stuff in there that uh, I haven't noticed yet. Like you just said about the uh, um, Snoopy, Red Baron. Uh, I'd never even noticed that. That's really cool. But, you know, it's, what, it's he's that kind of film director, isn't it? You can watch his stuff and watch it and watch it.
2: So oh, there's so many. Yeah. yeah, there's so many lines in there and there's so many things in the background and stuff like that that it, it is just packed with cultural references and um, you know and it's such a great film and uh, story and effort anyway so it, it is uh, just one you can keep on watching and enjoy it and it's a pleasant way to spend three hours
0: well this has been a pleasant way to spend the last uh, it certainly is <laughs> 45 minutes or so talking to you my old friend um, I look forward to look forward to the next uh, so film on our Cinema Plus podcast and uh, yeah that was us talking about once
2: upon a time there we go
0: well that's it for this week's episode be sure to take a look at our latest reviews and articles on our website moremovies.co.uk and come and say hi on twitter we'd love to hear from you and always relish the opportunity to continue the ever expanding conversation about cinema and the movies that we all love until next time this has been Greg Fisher with Dave Roberts for Cinema Plus that's a wrap